Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Film is Lit, the podcast where we discuss a piece of literature and its book or television adaptation. My name is Laura, and I'm the literature enthusiast. Enthusiast, I'm uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable with expert. I just, I just can never say it. My name is Danny. I'm the film expert, self-proclaimed, but it's proven to be true. <laughs> just listen to the past. How many episodes we have? I think this is episode thirty-six. I don't know. Maybe I've lost count. <laughs> well, we're on series four. Welcome. This is our fan request season. So yeah, if you have any books or movies you want us to tackle, please DM us on our social media platforms. Or but our we... season is full right now, well, so we might not be able to cover it this season. Yeah, but, but we later. will next yeah. season. Yeah, or the season after that. We'll get around to it. We're yeah. busy people. Yeah. Hey, get off our backs. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> like no one's mad at this us. This went from zero to one hundred real quick. <laughs> Yikes. All right. I think we should end this one. I, I'm feeling a little hostility from our audience. <laughs> All right. Well, let's introduce the piece that we're covering today. It is James Baldwin's novel, If Beale Street Could Talk, which was adapted into the beautiful film, If Beale Street Could Talk by Barry Jenkins in 2018. Beautiful is an understatement. Yes. We're coming out and saying this right now. We loved the movie and I guess love it and now. The, and the book. Yeah, it was yeah. one of yeah, and it was one of our favorites when it came out in 2018. Shout out to our friend, our mutual friend Eli, who was working at the ArcLight Hollywood uh, when mm-hmm. we saw this, and he couldn't recommend it more. He he was the big reason we went to see the film in the first place. And then we saw it again. Yeah. Because as we've discussed before, we're members of the American Cinematheque in Hollywood, and Barry Jenkins and Nicholas Bertel the composer of the incredible score, we're doing a Q&A at the small theater in Santa Monica, and we got to go and watch it. And that was probably one of the biggest thrills of my entire life. That, that was, was incredible. Yeah, yeah, Nicholas Bertel, as we'll discuss, in our opinion, the best working composer today, or, or one of. One of, yeah. yeah. Next one, of our, to, one of our faves. Next yeah. to Hans Zimmer, but of course, Hans Zimmer, I mean, everyone loves Hans Zimmer. It's like, yeah, let, let's move past it. Well, and yeah. who's that composer who died recently that you really oh, like? Oh, uh, Johan Johansson. Yes. Who, yeah, rest yeah. in peace to that he, guy. He recently died. In like 2011, or 2018, it was recent. It was 2017 because, so he did the score to Arrival, amazing score, should have been nominated, but through a technicality it wasn't. Uh, He also did the haunting score for Sicario, another one of my favorite films. Which we will not be covering on this podcast because it's too much for me and and it's it's not based on the book. book. So Sicario was also nominated for best score. He didn't win for that. Uh, One of the greats, Gone Too Soon, rest in peace, Johan Johansson, but yeah. Back to Bill Street. <laughs> Barry Jenkins couldn't have been a cooler, nicer, more informative, smart guy. Yeah. I mean, anything he makes. I mean, Moonlight, one best picture, well-deserved win over La La Land. I think right. my love of La La Land has cooled down to almost nothing. Uh, I liked it when it came out. But well, I, hot take, I hated it when it came out, and I still don't I, think it's a good movie. I get but... <laughs> it. Yeah, the thing was, it came out, and I had just moved to LA, and that movie is about moving to LA and making yeah. it and finding romance. So it spoke to me during that time, but I really don't... I literally went to it twice to hate watch it. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. I took a friend because I was like, you won't believe how bad this movie is. I don't know how she felt about it, I guess. I yeah. think. But I wanted to see it again to like confirm that I didn't like it, and sure enough... I haven't seen it since because I really didn't. But, yeah. but anyway. so yeah, Moonlight, <laughs> uh, which wasn't Barry Jenkins's debut. He made a film before that, which I haven't seen. But Moonlight, one of the greatest Best Picture winners yeah. ever. Beale who, Street. Who did the score for Moonlight? Nicholas Bertel. Nicholas... Oh my yeah. gosh. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> he was nominated for that too. Didn't win. And then two years later, made If Beale Street Could Talk. Critically acclaimed was not nominated for Best Picture, which is crazy. We'll get into a that. I have yeah. a, I have a huge rant about yeah. the politics about the Academy. Don't <laughs> yeah. get me started. I mean, it, it'll... well, no, it's a good conversation though because yeah. I didn't know how it worked. Yeah. I, I am very new to the industry, even though I grew up in LA. It's a loaded... Danny knows all of the you yeah. know the the game. It's as a we load say. of BS. You need to liter- <laughs> literally 
campaign like a politician in order for your picture to you know get... how many variety covers we've gotten yeah. with uh, with riz ahmed on the cover yeah <laughs> for for Sound of, which is a great movie but like come on variety yeah switch it up you're literally called variety oh <laughs> didn't even think of that that's a good joke but that's a good joke anyway but yeah so yeah, barry jenkins <laughs> and then now in a couple months barry jenkins is coming out with a television show also scored by nicholas Bertel, uh his adaptation of the underground railroad which is kind of historical fiction about what if the underground railroad was a literal railroad and maybe we'll cover that i mean it looks amazing it's not out yet but yeah love barry jenkins love nicholas Bertel, love this whole cast love the cinematographer we have a lot to talk about but of course the beautiful novel it's based on right a lot to talk about too in that regard and it's the story the literal stories between the two are for the most part the same i think they differ they differ in the final chapter i would say yeah why uh, in a big way yeah and there's a lot to discuss there and i would say the novel is more somber and more about the time period whereas i would say the movie it's more of a love story it very much is about the crimes and the rigged corrupt court and police system against african americans in this country but it it's it focuses more on the love story which makes it a little happier than the novel yeah, so I, I'm i going to struggle to explain, I, I guess I've done a lot of research because I didn't want to come from this as like a fully white person breaking down yeah. oh, this. And, and as we've said in past episodes, and we'll say this again, we are two white people yeah. who are not experts in anything. Yeah. <laughs> There's no agenda with this podcast, especially with this episode. We are... We are film and book lovers, and we're coming at this completely transparent, saying we're not experts. We've done research, but if we yeah. if we say anything wrong, it's it's not out of any malice or in- intention. Yeah, yeah, and that that's why I specifically went out of my way to bring a lot of different people's voices into my discussion today. I learned so much leading up to the reading of this novel that I was not able to do before I saw the movie because it came out and we were excited to see it and we just went ahead and saw it. And so this was the first time that I was reading the novel. In fact, it's the first time that I ever read a James Baldwin piece, which side note, I studied American literature in college. And I think that's kind of a fucked up statement that I was never given a piece of James Baldwin between Giovanni's room (laughs) and this book, which is not his most popular, I would say. I, I think it's obviously gaining popularity after the movie came out. But when the novel was published in 1974, it was actually written in the 50s, but it was published in the 70s. And there was a review in the New York Times written by a guy called Anatole Broyard. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Sorry if I mispronounced that. But he called Baldwin more dated than his long-dead adversary, Richard Wright, accusing the author of rehashing civil rights-era Jerry Maids against America. Which I think is so interesting because as you watch this movie and read this book, it is timeless. There are few authors who can write about topics and have them be timeless. So I thought that that was just such a a wrong read of this Mm -hmm. novel. I I don't understand how he could have called it dated. It's like it's like saying, oh, like we fixed racism, right? Like, that's not true. Yeah, if anything, it's more relevant today. Yeah. And... I wanted to talk a little bit about Baldwin as a person because I think his opinions on race in America and identity is really what shines from this novel. And so something, one of his biggest themes and one of his biggest theses when you watch interviews with him, which is so incredible, like I'm so happy that I was able to search personal interviews with him on YouTube. Like it was, it's so wonderful to hear an author talk about their own writing and their own words, you know? Yeah. So I looked up a bunch of these interviews and something that he consistently says is how America will never move past racism until we stop stereotyping. And he says in an interview that something he learned when he was, I think he says like 17, like he was a teenager. He realized that when people were looking at him, like white people or or people who weren't black were looking at him, they weren't seeing him as a person. They were seeing all of the stereotypes 
and all of the hatred and all of the issues that they struggle with internally and they're projecting them on him. And that was really interesting to me because what he does with this novel is he explores intra-racial relationships rather than interracial relationships, meaning he focuses on making a very personal, private portrait of this family who has been thrown into an extremely trying situation. And in a quick summary, that means that this 19-year-old and 22-year-old are dating, and the 22-year-old, Fawny Alonzo Hunt, is falsely accused of raping a woman, and he's sent to jail for it. And so during the entire novel, not only is his family and Tish's family fighting this conviction, they're also having a baby. So not only is Baldwin talking about racial injustice in general, he's also commenting on the fact that you need to take a very personal approach to these people. Because as soon as you start talking about the Black experience as a stereotype, that's all you're going to see when you see Black people. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was something that was really interesting. I just, I guess I had never thought of it in that way. But anytime you come into contact with people, you make judgments on the way that they sound or the way that they look or the way that, you know, what they're wearing. And it's my opinion. And it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things that as a human you have to do you sort of have to like claw those things away from your eyes and like really hone in on who these people are. And so you can't make sweeping statements about people. So again, he he plays with this very, unfortunately, universal experience of Black struggle in America. But he also says the only way that we're going to get past that is to see these people as individuals. Right. It very much, it never becomes a story solely about the case. Like there's one scene with the white police officer. There are two scenes in both the book and the movie with the lawyer. Uh, They talk about the officer a lot, but the focus always stays on Fani and Tish. And of course, their surrounding family. But it, it never shifts focus away from them. It never becomes about the cop. And, and the injustice about that. It's always, a, it's about that in a literal sense, but the focus is on the couple and it never strays from them. Yeah, there's uh, a famous review by Joyce Carol Oates where she says, Baldwin constantly understates the horror of his character's situation in order p- to present them as human beings whom disaster has struck rather than blacks who have typically been victimized by whites and are therefore likely subjects for a novel. I think that was a really beautiful way of expressing that. Right, yeah. Well, I'll just say this is also the first James Baldwin novel that I have read. It was pretty devastating, more so than the movie. Let's get into some of the differences. There's not a lot, but since the book and the movie are so similar, there's a lot of condensing mm-hmm. of scenes. And there, there is an extended vignette of Fanny's family in the book specifically his mother and it kind of makes sisters yeah and sisters but more so his mother the religious uh, zealot and kind of james baldwin is clearly harshly critiquing both religion and people who we talked about this in the ad astra episode of people who use religion as a crutch or as an excuse or it's not inherently bad to be religious but i think he's saying these type of people who are instead of taking action are using religion to blame her child for getting, you know, his lack of religion for getting into this situation. And she states that if he was just raised better in in more religious setting and listened to the sermons more, that he would not be in the place. But since he's strayed from that, that's why he's in this situation when no, what James Baldwin is pointing out, he's pointing out the racist and corrupt police system in right. New York and throughout the country. Yeah. I think the funniest part of the novel is when James Baldwin is describing Fanny as a kid overhearing his parents have yeah. sex. And yeah, which is not in the movie. Yeah, not, yeah, not, like said, not in the condensed. movie. And the, his mom like screaming out like she wants the Lord. Like, oh, right. yes, like give me it. Oh, Lord. And like his dad, clearly not religious, saying yeah. like, I got the Lord right here. Fear the Lord. Like the Lord yeah. in my penis. <laughs> yeah. It's the funny, I mean... 
your critique can't get more harsh than that, saying that like <laughs> even even when you're at your most vulnerable having sex, the father's not taking it seriously. Yeah. And how can you be thinking about God when you're you know right. doing making the beast with two backs? Um, <laughs> As the kids say. <laughs> so that that was a funny addition that's not in the movie. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the vignettes are extended as you get to know the families which are so Fani's family is the hunts and then tish's family are the rivers and i think the most glaring stray in the movie is that it changes the ending to be a little bit more hopeful and that is because unfortunately Fani's dad commits suicide in the end of the book because he just doesn't believe that there's any hope to get his son out of prison and it kind of ends where you don't know if there's going to be any movement in Fani's case right so it's really really dark yeah Baldwin ends with kind of a metaphorical passage of Fani becoming one with the prison and like realizing that that is his home now. Mm -hmm. So he kind of subtly hints at, at least I interpreted that Fani's going to be in there maybe for the rest of his life or, or at least for a while, if not, you know, get the death penalty. Uh, I'm not sure if, if the death penalty was a thing during that yeah, time I'm but not sure. um, but yeah but then the trauma of hearing that Frank Fonny's dad has killed himself sends Tish into labor so yeah. it's very <laughs> intense and not prematurely like she was due but yeah. that is the catalyst for her giving birth whereas in the movie I think to be honest I think Barry Jenkins made the right decision to make it a little bit more hopeful where Fawny takes a plea, much like his friend Daniel, who we've met earlier in the story, who was wrongfully convicted of stealing a car and took a plea bargain to get only two years rather than getting a full sentence for marijuana possession. Yeah. Which again, he was wrongfully stopped. You know, the police didn't have any reason to approach him and pat him down or frisk him and find the pot. But they did, and then he was offered a plea bargain because they were looking for a car thief. Yeah. So he only got two years. And so in the movie, Barry Jenkins decides that Fawny is offered a plea deal, and so he's in jail for anywhere between, you know, five or ten years. It's unclear, but when the final scene plays, his son is already, like, five years old, and he's still in prison. He now has more... FaceTime with them and he doesn't have to see them through glass like they're in one of those communal visiting areas yeah but it's devastating still you know like that he has to watch his son grow up in these like snippets of however many minutes that he's allowed to interact with him right and it ends with a shot of him and Tish holding hands and sort of looking into each other's eyes and that is still very emotionally overwhelming yeah but I, I think that it just might have been a little bit too much. Yeah, it would have been too bleak, to I think, on the screen. It, yeah. Right, the way that the book ends it. So, yeah, I mean, I mean very moving. Yeah, <laughs> I think just like Moonlight and all the other projects that Barry Jenkins has made, his movies are sensory experiences with an emphasis on sound his sound design is pretty incredible the horns in the score yeah well the score but also with the dialogue he certain line deliveries he will double up the dialogue so like play it twice so it kind of has a slight echo and it sound Mm -hmm. it sounds different on Mm -hmm. purpose he also does the thing where he'll play sound on, on certain ends of the speaker. So in a theater, it's a sensory overload of sound and music and emotion. His movies also visually are beautiful. He works with cinematographer James Laxton, who is nominated for Moonlight, not nominated for If Bill Street Could Talk, which is crazy. Ridiculous. Because this movie's beautiful. And yeah, his movies are very... he. His signature, at least in his two films that I've seen, are uh, close-up shots of yes. people's faces looking straight down the barrel of the camera. And you couldn't get, you can't get more intimate than no. that. Yeah. And that's his goal. He wants you to know these people. He wants you to look deep into their eyes. He wants you to fall in love with them. Well, exactly as James Baldwin is trying to get you to recognize the humanity and the 
unique identity of these people. I think he did that incredibly well with those close-up long shots because you can't ignore the emotion and you can't ignore that they're black. Yeah. And I have, I have, so something that I've done in like my re-education of race in America, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I discovered something that was really interesting and I would be very interested to ask the cinematographer if he was aware of this as he was shooting the movie. By the way, was this digital or film? You know, good question. I actually don't know. Um... Well, I don't know if you want to look it up while I'm talking, but... Or not, it doesn't matter. But I was reading this book by the comedian Phoebe Robinson. Are you familiar with her? She's like in Broad City and is a writer and stand-up comedian. Anyway, she's really funny. And I found her short memoir at a thrift store and I picked it up and I've been reading it. It's really good. If anybody wants to read it, it's called You Can't Touch My Hair and Other Things I Still Have to Explain. And she taught me about this concept called a Shirley card. Have you ever heard of this? No. So when photography was being developed, there was a white woman named Shirley something. I don't remember her last name, but her photo in like the 1890s or something. I could be wrong about that, but it was it was when photography was like being developed. Her photo was used as like a color standardizer when you were processing film. Mm. So if you could make the people in the photographs look like her... And with the lighting and, you know, while you're developing it, that meant that you had a good exposure and you had the right aperture to get a good print. Well, of course, that was based on a white woman's skin. And going forward, companies like Kodak used that standardization in their printing process, even as like cameras developed and like, you know, into the 90s. There was no way to standardize darker skin tone in photography And so it was actually harder to get a good picture of people who had darker skin tones. And in like 1995, Kodak created a new Shirley card and, and Fuji eventually like went further in this because, and this is like so fucked up, but like furniture and chocolate manufacturers came back with their like advertisements and they were saying, oh, we're not getting good enough color contrast for our products. Mm -hmm. And that's when in 1995, Kodak came out with their new Shirley card, which included an Asian woman's skin tone, a white woman's skin tone, and a black woman's skin tone to get the skin tones right when they're printing. And then this, sorry, this is sort of like a whole thing that I like researched. It It was just like so interesting for me to dive into. But anyway, I came across this article by Sarah Lewis, who's teaches at Harvard um, photography. And there was this quote that says, photography is not just a system of calibrating light, but a technology of subjective decisions. To me, when I started learning about that, and when I heard about Phoebe Robinson's experience of taking pictures with white friends who would show up really well in the light and take good pictures, but then she would sort of blend into the background of things, I was like blown away. I was like, that's something that I just never thought of about how photography is so subjective. And like, when you're thinking about printing a picture and you come out looking fine, it's like, well, that's because it's been standardized to match white skin tones or lighter skin tones. Mm. And so I would really be interested in having a conversation with the cinematographer because something that's so, like you said, immersive about this film is that you can see that these are individual people with individual skin tones. Yeah, you know what I mean? You see it's, the pigment. Yeah, you yeah. see like how different you can't you can't just say like, oh, this is a predominantly or pretty much only black cast. Everybody has a different skin tone. And I think like I wouldn't be surprised if the cinematographer was aware of this and they obviously took so much time in lighting these people correctly. And I mean, the set design is also incredible, you know, the costumes, incredible. And I just wanna like acknowledge the fact that I didn't know that that is and has been an issue for people with darker skin tones. The colors in here are very intentional. And I think it's because the cinematographer and probably Barry Jenkins were aware that you have to be intentional about lighting people with different skin tones. Yeah. I mean, that's just something I didn't know. And, and I really like took a deep dive into like the systematic racism behind photography. 
So I just wanted to share that. I just, I learned a lot. Yeah. Sorry, I went on like a whole rant, no. but I just like, no, I found that very interesting. that's what this podcast is about. I'd rather talk about those fun little details yeah, and, and I never would have known that. So thanks to Phoebe Robinson and Sarah Lewis who taught me about that. <laughs> yeah, about the little details, which is why Barry Jenkins films are so incredible it's why they stand out the the attention to detail the emphasis on character work and the little things actors do that informs you the viewer of their character i mean yeah by far the best scene in my opinion is the scene when the two families meet kind of like a romeo and juliet type of situation when tish reveals that she's pregnant and of course the mom freaks out and then the dad frank uh, slaps her yeah. down to the ground and we're a, we're not condoning violence <laughs> domestic violence but right. it is kind of a yeah. cathartic moment <laughs> yeah not okay to do that but also don't uh, condemn your unborn grandchild right don't yeah. curse yeah she says like oh the that spawn. baby's gonna shrivel in your womb yeah. and it's like um that's not okay to say. Yeah, and she says ex- like, "I suppose you think your lustful act is out of love," and it's like, "Yikes, lady! They're basically married." Like they and and Tish even makes the comment, "We would have been married if Fawny weren't in jail right now." Like it's not our fucking fault. Yeah, that- <laughs> and the exchanges between, uh, especially uh, Tish's sister Ernestine. Ernestine oh my gosh, says, yeah. played by the wonderful uh, Tiona Paris, who is in WandaVision, if you've ever seen... I haven't seen uh, it. For all the people who watch WandaVision, she's... Um... If there's a flaw in this movie, I would say more Ernestine. Yeah. Because <laughs> by the end, she's not in it too much, but she's such a good actress and like such a tender, loving sister. Right, yeah. So fierce yeah, when but... she's fighting other people. Sorry. Yeah, but she plays Monica Rambo in WandaVision, for all those wondering. She's great in that, that show. The ending of that show didn't really stick the landing for me, but she's great in that. But yeah, her exchange when <laughs> after, so the mother, Mrs. Hunt, has been hit down the ground, and they're like, uh, her heart, and, and and all that stuff. And then she as they're leaving, she's just like, you know, your daughters don't have to worry about this because no one wants to fuck them. Yeah. <laughs> no, so and funny. she also, she's like, one of the sisters goes, I knew he shouldn't have come, and she's like, Oh, I can't believe you could even say that word. Yeah, I didn't know you did that. Uh, so. Oh my gosh, that was so funny. Yeah. yeah. So and you know what? What a great movie to see in the movie theater because yeah. this got laughs in every point that it needed to, and it obviously also got tears. Yeah. Every place that it needed to. So it was a great. You know, it's one of those things we have to look back on, and we're like, wow, like we saw this twice in the theater. So glad we did because we haven't been inside a movie theater yeah. for. Or a communal watching space, you know, for, for over a year. Over a year so, yeah. yeah. But what I'll say is that it, it was great watching this on our TV last night. But this is a old. You wouldn't think that this is a theater movie, an experience movie, because you normally associate those type of movies with the action films, mm. like explosions and superheroes and all that stuff. But as we said before, Barry Jenkins is all about sensory, not necessarily overload, but bombardment he wants Immers- you yeah, yeah. immersion, immersion that's yeah. the that's the word that's yeah. the vocab sat word i'm looking for <laughs> that's what really makes this film special and i guess the novel too in a, on a literary sense but totally you, you are full it is more than just the story it is more than just the conflict it is about feeling emotions through and through i mean james baldwin takes your heart and rips it out and you watch it slowly beat down but it doesn't it doesn't fully die because <laughs> At the end of the day, there is that love, that that unbreakable bond between between the two uh, main characters. That sounds a little bit cheesy, but that's kind of the point of that. Even through all this hardship, adversity, racism, a a racist system, and they're set up to fail from the start. That's another thing I liked about both the book and the movie. It starts you in the beginning. Fonny's in jail. Tish is visiting him. And right away it sets up the story as in like they're going to fail it doesn't come yeah. out and say it but you know part of the thrilling aspect of the story it's not a fast-moving story but it's still thrilling because the whole time you know that they're doomed right well and it comes through in tish's voiceover because she's speaking in not only the past tense but also in a very recollective 
tone. I don't know if that is, is recollective, oh, yeah. recollective tone. I don't yeah, know. Retrospective. Um, retrospective tone. I think that's, yeah. the, that's the SAT word I was looking for. Thanks. <laughs> we both got We it. could have worked <laughs> together to get a perfect score on the SATs. I know. But I agree. I think that something that both James Baldwin and Jenkins does so well is that Fonny is such a tender person. And I think a line from the book that really spoke to me was when Tish says, that same passion which saved Fonny got him into trouble and put him in jail. For you see, he had found his center, his own center inside him, and it showed. He wasn't anybody's N-word. Yeah. And that's, again, it's something that James Baldwin talks so much about that you can't act like a stereotype. You can't interact with someone in a genuine way if you're only reacting to a stereotype yeah. and to issues that you have within yourself. And when she talks about passion, it really hit me because it's something like, like you think about this, Fonny is 22 years old. What did we hear when we were 22? We were hearing like, follow your passion. Like, do what you want to do. Like, find a job that you won't feel like you're working every day of your life. You know what I mean? But this man, this 22-year-old, had his future completely taken away because he said, I'm not going to be your N-word. I'm not going to be your stereotype. And he found his passion in sculpting. Yeah. And because he was, he stood up in the face of this white cop, who, by the way, incredibly well cast in the movie. He is such a nasty person like oh, yeah. like played by uh, ed screen who, oh, wow. uh, or i think it's skirin i don't actually know how to pronounce it he's the villain in deadpool the first deadpool uh, wow ajax he just i mean you feel his vitriol jumping off the movie screen well like, to, to go back to the cinematography and the close-ups whenever there's a, a section where they do a close-up on on his character the cop and this actor ed skirin he has this sharp protruding jaw and he whenever he clenches it you can see it visibly in yeah. the back of it. it's like it's like sticking out very much intentional choice i think for him to be clenching his jaw so tight they paint him as a man so racist that he can't he can't even control it he can't contain it you see it bubbling out and if it wasn't closing his mouth it would pour out of him in a, a literal sense. So you see that clenching jaw and this intense close-up and you are just frightened by this man. Yeah, I really want to read a quote by a review in Slate. I don't know if it's a magazine or online magazine, but I found this and I think it was so well said. A scene of the lovers wooing conjures the magic of rain-drenched streets in classic Hollywood cinema. A later one of Fawny's confrontation with Officer Bell evokes the grit of movies like Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets. Like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, like, it, the tone changes. Even, again, the lighting changes for this character. We see him in really close-up long shots where he's like, you're right, like, he, his racism is so bottled up and right yeah like he's gritting his teeth like he literally cannot yeah it, it stands still it made my jaw hurt watching him do right. that i'm like that can't be good for your teeth what? <laughs> Wait. well yeah but like but it's so true like again fawny has found his center in sculpting and being this passionate but tender man but officer bell sees nothing except his skin and again, that's like a very old story, but like the way that Barry Jenkins visualizes that and the way that James Baldwin writes that, it just, it makes it individual again to these people. It doesn't like, I don't yeah. know. I, I'm like not talking very well, but I think you're talking fine, but it's eloquently. just, it's just so specific to their story. Yeah. And something I think the novel does better than the movie is highlighting the fatal mistake Fonny makes in telling the officer his address. I mean, yes. it, it all yeah. stems from that mistake. And in the movie, he says it quickly. And honestly, the first time I saw it, I didn't even think of it because it happened so fast. And I'm like, yeah, he tells him his address. But in the book, Tish's narration says, and then, like a fool, he tells him our address. And yeah. it's like, oh, everything stemmed from that. Of course, that interaction started the rivalry between the officer and Fanny, but now now he knows where he lives. All it takes is just 
an excuse. Well, yeah, an excuse. Yeah. An officer to find the opportunity to, to to pick him up. To pick him up. And yeah, that's another thing that it's mirrored in the character of Daniel is that police officers were finding black people to fit crimes, even if they weren't even connected or knew anything about that. They were putting the, they were intentionally setting them up in lineups or in situations, like in Daniel's situation, where they leveraged his marijuana charge to get him to admit to another charge they had nothing to do with, simply because the cops wanted to close that case. Which still happens. R yeah. Right, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. Let's, let's make that clear. Right. That, that still happens. Profiling, but, yeah. Still but happens. in this specific storyline, in this period, he was saying that, yeah, cops are using their racism to close cases, essentially. And so because of that fatal mistake, Officer Bell, through his racist thinking, wanted to close another case and get back at Fani. So he took the opportunity since he knew his address. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think, so I want to, I want to read another quote from Joyce Carol Oates' review of the book because it touches exactly on that. So she says, Yet the novel is ultimately optimistic. It stresses the communal bond between families of an oppressed minority, especially between members of a family, which would probably not be experienced in happier times. As society disintegrates in a collective sense, smaller human unity will become more and more important. Those who are without them, like Fani's friend Daniel, will probably not survive. Certainly, they will not reproduce themselves. Mm-hmm. Fani's real crime is having the center inside him. That was a quote from the book. But this is ultimately the means by which he survives. Others are less fortunate. So I think, like you're saying, Daniel represents that person who is tetherless. Yeah. And doesn't have that communal bond, which is so tragic. I mean, Daniel's story in the book is tragic, but watching Brian Tyree Henry act that story out on screen like i'm gonna choke up talking about it because yeah I, it's so intense he, and and again those close-ups and yeah. that lighting goes beyond any other movie i i mean it's just like i can't even describe how good it is <laughs> yeah i the most haunting quote is when he's giving that monologue about his time in prison and he said i came to the understanding that white man must be the devil because they ain't no man so that's a pretty pretty striking statement and yeah brian tyree henry amazing actor just now emerging into the forefront uh, he was great in widows uh, he was great voicing the father in the Sp spider-verse animated movie which oh, we also loved yeah, yeah. Oh, an amazing cool. actor he only has about 12 minutes of screen time but easily he could have been nominated for best supporting yeah. actor oh but yeah he, was not. Uh, I remember I predicted that he would be, and that was one of the biggest snubs of that year. Do you and... want to go into your rant about? Oh yeah. Hey, well, it was <laughs> the sit down. Academy Awards. You're starting to pick up a book, but you can put that down because yeah, I was I'm just trying to be... find another quote. But go, Ready. go so, for it. This movie, if Bill Street could talk, was only nominated for three Academy Awards, whereas Barry Jenkins' last film, Moonlight, nominated for eight, uh, one, three, including Best Picture. So when this movie came out, everyone thought Barry Jenkins was going to go two for two and get at least get nominated for Best Director and Best Picture again. But it was only nominated for Best Supporting Actress, which Regina King won. I mean, let's all hail Regina King right now. Right. Amazing performance. I mean, I can't wait to talk about Watchmen, the TV show, because she's the lead in that. Yeah. And she won an Emmy for that, too, by the way. And then it was also nominated for Best Score, Nicholas Patel, and Best Adapted Screenplay. That's it. No Best Production Design, no Best Cinematography, Editing, none of that. Insane. 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 No Best Director for Jenkins. And, okay, so here's part, part one of the long rant. So, it's snubbed for Best Picture is egregious for two reasons. Part one is that films need to campaign for Oscars, like politicians. Of course, there's also the critical element and word of mouth element, but there's also this actual campaigning where you need to send screeners to Academy members to watch the film because they're too lazy to go see it in a theater like other professional critics or regular audience members need to do. Now, Anna Purina, the production company behind this, they put all their money behind promoting Vice 
because they thought that since Barry Jenkins won Best Picture with his last film, that they wouldn't need to campaign for this film because people would already be seeing it. <laughs> they were wrong. Yeah. And Vice? I can't believe that. Vice. I, I'm not a fan of that movie at all. It's one of the most pretentious things I've ever seen. And I hate Dick Cheney, by the way. But <laughs> anyways, so because... They didn't send, and the Academy has a history, especially in recent times, of if they don't get screeners, out of spite, they won't nominate it for a lot of things. Just because- Fucking stupid. Just because they didn't, <laughs> because they couldn't watch it at home, they don't nominate it for a best picture. But they still, it's like, okay, but it had enough views for you to nominate Regina King, but not, like, but, like it, that doesn't make any sense and their excuse a lot is because people in the academy work in the industry and they're saying that they are also working on films so they don't have the time to go see it in a theater i'm also i also have a fucking job right. and i managed to see all of the academy award nominated yeah. movies like we we both yeah. we both have long hours we work 70 hour weeks on average we still make time to do this podcast <laughs> we still make time to watch all the oscar nominees if you are an academy <laughs> member and you don't make the time, even if you're working 70 plus hour weeks, if you don't make the time to watch movies, your literal only responsibility. Your job, yeah. If yeah. you're a part of the Academy, that's your responsibility to watch all the films that you can. If you can't handle that responsibility, that's fine. But resign. Yeah. Drop out yeah. of the Academy. If you, if you can, I mean, yeah, understandable. If you, if you just don't have that time or you don't want to make the effort to go into the theater, understandable. But don't sit here and nominate films only because you were handed those films by the production companies. Annapurna was put in a rock and a hard place because they didn't have the budget to promote two films. They couldn't send out Vice and If Bill Street Could Talk, so they took a chance saying that everyone loves Barry Jenkins, so they're gonna nominate If Bill Street Could Talk anyways. They didn't. It was snubbed for Best Picture, one of the biggest snubs of that year, because everyone loved it. Yeah. Uh, of course, we love it. If, even if you don't like it, you can understand the importance of it, that how relevant it was to 2018 and especially now. I mean, geez. Right, Louise. it only becomes more relevant. Yeah, it's one of those films that, will, like the novel, will be timeless. So th that's the first thing, where the politics behind nominating films, it all comes from your campaign. It all comes from wooing and... Uh, yeah, because, like, you also... They also, like, throw parties for Academy yeah. voters, right? Like, it's not just that they get screeners. They also get, like, massive parties, if not, like, straight-up just gifts, right. which are basically bribes. Like, yeah. they, they can accept... There's no, like, maximum... Like, a politician can't you know, receive something that's worth more than $25 or something. Yeah. But like, there's no maximum, there's no regulation for what they can receive and accept. Exactly. It's like, funny <laughs> that while James Baldwin is talking about a rigged court system, the Academy is also rigged and this movie tried to bet against that rigged yeah, system like, sorry, and lost. Academy, how many female directors have ever been nominated for right. best director? Yeah. Sorry, what is that number? Literally fucking three? Yeah, I'm happy like, that Chloe Zhao is the favorite to win. I think she's going to win for Nomadland. But anyways, yeah, <laughs> it's it's 2021. I mean, literally how the academies have been for what? Almost 100 years? Anyways, how many people are in the academy? 8,469. Okay. A lot of those members <laughs> are, are, are recent because in the recent years, they've been adding more and more members of diverse backgrounds. Sure. I mean, thankfully, geez. Yeah. But at okay, Golden Globes. So that yeah, at oh Golden Globes. That's that's the <laughs> that's most another rigged, rant. That's the most rigged voting system of like all time. Not just movies and like award yeah. shows. Like anyways, <laughs> back to the original rant. So that that was the first point. How ridiculous the rigged system is. The second point I'm gonna make is that there always used to be five movies that were nominated for a Best Picture until 2009 when The Dark Knight wasn't nominated. And that was a big deal. The president of the Academy, Sydney, at the time, Sydney Gaines, even called it out how ridiculous it was that a film, The Dark Knight, who most have seen more than the other nominees combined and who mm -hmm. has universal acclaim wasn't nominated. So because of this, they expanded the category from five films to 10 films. So mm -hmm. 10 films can be nominated for Best Picture now. 
but since 2009, when they changed the rules, there have never been 10 films that have been nominated. There's only been eight or nine. Because when you vote for a best picture, you do preferential ballots, which means you rank films. So the films that get eventually nominated are the films that get the most number one votes. And even though they expanded the category, they have a rule where if you get less than 5% of number one votes, you can't be included in Hmm. the best pictures. So... You can get nominated for like number two or number three a bunch of times and you could be universally liked. But for some reason, if you don't have 5% of number one votes, you just, you don't make the cut. Hmm. But here's the thing. The whole point of expanding the amount of nominations from five to 10 is to include films that otherwise people wouldn't know about mm-hmm. because they weren't nominated. That, that was the whole... Or they po- weren't campaigned hard yeah. enough for. Yeah, right. Or to include films that everyone likes but aren't normally nominated, like superhero films, for example. Like, everyone loves those, but a lot of times they aren't nominated because they, in the Academy's eyes, they don't get the most number one votes, I guess. And th- that's fair. But my argument is that why do this whole 5% thing? Like, sure, maybe Bill Street didn't have a chance of winning, but everyone kind of knew that... It was loved, and I bet it was that year there were eight nominees. I bet it was that ninth nominee. And why not just do, why not just fill out the 10 just to fill it? What the Academy year after year doesn't understand is that, yes, in a literal sense, the Oscars are an awards show where you give out awards to the films that you deem the best in that category. In a literal sense, that is what the show is. But what they always claim the show is and what the show should be is a celebration of that year's crop of films. For sure. Again, they could nominate 10 films, but they simply don't yeah. simply because of this weird like it's percentage. super ambiguous. Like, yeah. Who, like who, who, yeah, who fucking set that? And every year there's there's that. always like one or two front runners and a dark horse. So, you know, ostensibly every year there's only three films in Best Picture to really look out for. Mm-hmm. So, like who cares if there's 10 nominees or even 15 like who gives a crap? If you can nominate 10 films, nominate 10 films. Yeah. They claim to celebrate diversity in films, but yet because of a technicality, they don't put in Bill Street when clearly it could have made that cut. Yeah. Yeah, and we even see that this year. There is only eight films nominated, and everyone was like, where's One Night in Miami? Where's yeah. Where's Ma Rainey's, Rainey's Black, Black Bottom? Bottom? Where's Another Round? Like, those are yeah. universal films that probably were in the 8, 9, and 10, or sorry, the 9, 10, 11 spot, but they simply because didn't they didn't get the over 5%. 5%, which is like, who set that up? Yeah. Like, who gives a crap? Yeah. Everyone knows Nomadland is going to win anyways might be upset by minari or promising young woman so everyone knows it's going to be one of those three films so why not just tack on a cut it doesn't make any freaking sense and so that was the case with this this year i'm sorry to go on for so long but it's something really passionate about how the academy awards are not a celebration of film they are as political as you can get yeah and there every year there are snubs that no one can explain so yeah that was the case here I can't believe it was snubbed. They took advantage of Anna Purina's low budget to campaign and didn't nominate Beale Street. So, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's rigged. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm glad that you shared that with people because I really don't think that people necessarily understand the mechanics of that. And you're right. Like, really, all people care about are the winners unless you're looking at the mechanics and you're like, hold on a second. Like, yeah. let's... Let's actually dig into this and see, like, what's going on. Even if a film has no chance in hell of winning, why not just nominate it? Well, see, and that's the thing. Like, the thing that kind of bugs me is, like, when you buy a DVD or a Blu-ray, which, by the way, Danny and I are huge physical media people. Like, we've got, come over to our house and we've got books and movies basically lining the walls. But that is what you put on the cover of your case, right? It's... (laughs) Grammy <laughs> Academy Award winner, um, <laughs> but but even the no- that was a that was a nod to Chef Gordon, Gordon Ramsay, um, but even if your movie doesn't win, there are always you know 
five-time Academy Award-nominated yeah. liners on right. the cases. And so it's like, yeah, even to be nominated is a big deal. And, you know, like, if we want to talk about how political it is, like, obviously it's a huge thing when you win. Yeah. But even to just get nominated is a big deal. And let's, like, stop pretending like it's not. Right. Because literally marketing campaigns will be built on how many awards that you've been nominated or have won for and so yeah it's like let's pretend that it's not not a big deal yeah because it is so anyway um yeah (laughs) moving on um do you have any more glaring differences or you know differences to talk about between the book and the movie i don't but i do want to talk about a similarity that i really liked shoot your shot so (laughs) something that i latched on to that was very powerful for me to watch on the screen and read about was the modernization of ownership over female bodies because in a very literal way black women going back to slavery have been seen as property Mm -hmm. and even as like a white female like i know going out on runs it's like when you're in a space that should be communal, but a male decides to yell at you or whistle at you or stop their car and sort of leer at you, you know, the male gaze, that sets up this environment of ownership. Like, this is my territory, you're in it, so I can do whatever I want with your body. And this is very subtle in the book and the movie, but, well, it's, it's subtle, but it's also explicit. Tish talks about working at the department store behind a perfume counter. And she talks about the different ways that different customers interact with her as a saleswoman. And she talks about how if a black man comes up to her, they will either say nothing and sort of have this like unvocalized check-in, like, how are you doing sort of thing? Mm -hmm. Or that person will reach their hand out for her to spray perfume on their hand and they will bring their hand up to their nose to smell the perfume. Yeah. But when a white man comes up to the counter, they will have Tish spray the perfume on her hand and hold her hand and take it up to their nose and like keep it there for too long. Like they're not just sniffing, they're like holding her hand and like uncomfortably getting in her space. And again, I think that that's a very attentive way of demonstrating that men in general, but especially white men, sorry, (laughs) not sorry, have this almost generational feeling of ownership Mm. over females' bodies, Mm. right? And, And this is something that like, I mean, again, like I was brought up in like a very, I mean, I would say like I I went to a very diverse high school, but obviously like the, the curriculum was very whitewashed. And so like, sure, we like read about slavery and we knew about slavery, but we weren't necessarily given like slave narratives to read. And something that I, I learned a lot from when I was reading Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl written by Harriet Jacobs, I read this last summer, I think. And she talks about how rape is one thing and it's traumatic and we see that with mrs rogers who's accusing fawny of rape who obviously has been raped but not by fawny right how traumatic that is but also how traumatic it is when your body is literally owned right by someone as a slave and that trauma like there's so many layers of like you know regardless of, you know, whether you went through that as a slave woman, but also there is very, there are very clear overtones that that's happening in jail to the men as well. Like Daniel is very clearly raped. I think it's suggested that Fawny is probably raped. And in the book, they say he was beaten up because he wouldn't agree to be raped. Exactly. So I think translating that into the modern, well, into the 1970s, 1950s, but also now, I think it shows, like, how can you deny that systematic racism is not present? Yeah. Those interactions for Tish behind the perfume counter, she knows. That is a very emotional reaction to having someone grab your hand and hold it uncomfortably close to their mouth and nose. And 
And I just think, like, number one, it demonstrates, again, that systematic racism is present. It continuously happens in prisons behind closed doors. And I think that's what's really traumatic is, like, you don't see it. And it gives people who work in prisons and, you know, unfortunately, other inmates the ability to continue committing crimes behind closed doors. But it's just really interesting to watch James Baldwin be so aware of, like, the female experience of physical ownership like he writes very well for in a woman's voice and sometimes like when i'm reading things that men have written about women or in women's voices i get a like a little bit not skeeved out but defensive i guess because i just don't know how well men can write for women Mm -hmm. but i think that is such an attentive moment that james baldwin can extend the experience of slavery into the modern world for women and men. Because again, like he does just flat out say like, yes, like rapes are happening to men in prison, but also like when you're in a communal space and you know what, to be honest, like that perfume counter, that is Tish's space. And men walk into that space and still think that they are allowed to touch her or to invade that's what should be a safe space is like, again, sorry, I like keep repeating myself, but I just think it's very attentive. And this book is written in in first person perspective, but it's also sort of written in um, stream of consciousness. So yeah. just James Baldwin is just, he's an, an incredible writer. I, I mean, I, I cannot say enough about his writing. He's just so, I don't know, he's incredible. Go read his books. I can't, yeah. I can't, I can't no, analyze I them because it's like, you just, you just gotta read. I, I, he's incredible. I, I, I was watching this video of a woman critiquing this book and she was like, James Baldwin is bae. And I was like, she's like, I want him to be my grandfather. And I was like, wow, I, I understand that. But yeah. anyway, sorry, I've talked too much now. No, that's another haunting part of the story. And in kind of my part one of two of my closing thoughts is that, yeah, I, it's similar to, uh, not in subject matter, but in feel of uh, Rosemary's Baby, which we discussed last season, of you know the conflict at the beginning, and mm. part of the thrill, but also the depressing pull tension. of the piece. Yeah, tension, thank you. <laughs> is that you watch it play out, and there's nothing you can do. And there's kind of a call to action in, in uh, this book mm-hmm. because this is a problem that can be fixed and w- there's certain measures are, are thankfully starting starting to be made in today's society against mm. police forces, and but it, it's not enough and we're not there yet. But it, it's really haunting, but it's crazy how Barry Jenkins was the perfect filmmaker to tackle this story because just like Moonlight, This story is haunting, scary, but it is still intimate, beautiful, moving, sensual even. Oh, oh my God. Sensual, yes. Yeah. And it's, that's very hard to pull off. I think both James Baldwin and Barry Jenkins uh, successfully make art that is scary, calls you to action, but it, it is also slightly heartwarming and uh, sparks something within you of course the novel has a bleak as f (laughs) ending and it's a little more depressing than the movie but yeah barry jenkins was the perfect director for this he's a great actor's director regina king amazing i also wanted to shout out coleman domingo (gasps) yeah who plays uh mr rivers uh, joseph rivers tish's father he has a few amazing uh, monologues, one-liners, a great presence. Um, I've met him in my profession before. I can't say the project or the time, but he was just a class act, a great guy. I, it was a privilege to get to talk to him, even if it was a, a brief mm-hmm. period. So that was kind of a cool connection. Uh, I'm a huge fan of this guy. He's just starting to emerge. He was in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. There was talks that he might get nominated for that film. He was not. Mm. Uh, but yeah, Coleman Domingo, shout out. Regina King. Regina King is king. A king, yeah. <laughs> she is queen. Queen, yeah. She won, what is it, like two or three Emmys, one for Watchmen. She won an Oscar for this movie. Totally deserved. Bring, yeah. She brought a whole new dimension and warmth yes. to the mother character. Yes. Her scenes in Puerto Rico were so moving. Oh my God. And when she, yeah. Yeah. When she fails... 
Yeah, and fa- yeah, yeah. And, and breaks down. Oh, shout out to Pedro Pascal who has that one oh, scene. I forgot that, about that, him. That cameo. Yeah, uh, he's actually great in like his two minutes of screen time. I, I forgot is, about yeah. that. Um, so yeah, Barry Jenkins, the ultimate actors director. I cannot wait for his Underground Railroad series. Well, hey, as long as we're on actors, I literally read the book in Kiki Lane's voice. Yeah, she's incredible the way that she gives tish that incredible innocence like she's 19 yeah in the book and movie she gives her this incredible innocence but also this understanding of what's going on like she's not naive she's innocent but she's not naive yeah incredible performance and again i read the book in her voice because she just embodied that character so well yeah, and Stephen James, great as Fani. Yes. I thought he'd have a bigger career after this. He's hasn't been in a lot. So I hope both Kiki Lane and Stephen James star in something big because yeah. they deserve it. Uh, love, as I've said before, to Yona Paris, who is in uh, mm-hmm. WandaVision. And yeah, the rest of the cast is great. Diego Luna playing uh, Pedro Cito in the Spanish restaurant. And yeah, amazing, amazing movie. Uh, Closing thoughts for you, Lore? Yeah, so a couple of closing thoughts. So number one, I, I appreciate that this is, like we live in a time when a movie like this was made and was received so well by the public. I also want to talk about this feeling of removal from the book and movie just because... You know, I am white and and there is that feeling sometimes that like it is so intimate to this family and so specific to their experience that it's almost like I'm intruding. And there's this really great interview with this author uh, he writes for The Atlantic. His name is Tanahisi Coates. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but he's written a few books as well. And he's giving this interview like at a college and someone asks him about what you do in a situation when you're with like white friends and you're like singing along with the song and the N-word is used in the song. How do you tell your friends that it makes you uncomfortable for them to be using that word, even in a song? And I think it relates to my experience a little bit reading this book because in his response, he explains that white people in America are taught that everything belongs to you. He says, like, in a funny way, like, not using that word is like a glimpse of what Black people have to endure on a day-to-day basis. He says, being Black is to walk around through the world and watch people do things that you cannot do. And I think, like, it's important to recognize that while I enjoyed this piece and there were things where, you know, sometimes I'm like, oh, yeah, like, as a woman, like... I feel objectified when men like make comments about me or whistle at me. This is a very specific experience that I I just will never be a part of. And that's why we need to read books like this outside of your experience because it teaches you to be comfortable being in a space, like learning from other people, but not necessarily saying, I understand what that feels like. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's, there's a separation that I think you do need to keep in a respectful way. Yeah. Something that I think people are also very familiar with is Lavia J.E. Jones's quote, get comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. And oh, I, yeah, you said I, that. Yeah, yeah like, yeah. I, I just think that's a really good space to come to these pieces with because, again, like, it is intimate. And as much as you can say there's an enduring theme of love and family bond and racism in America... You have to just take yourself out of that and and be okay feeling uncomfortable because, you know, we just, for the most part, like, we probably will not have these experiences. So I just think that that's, like, a good way of separating yourself. And and again, like, everything that Danny and I have said, like, we want to be respectful. And if there's, if anyone has any comments or feedback, we are happy to hear those things. Yes. Um, Yeah. And I, I just... I really enjoy the, these pieces and I hope to continue in my journey of of learning and how to be more anti-racist. So. Oh, me too. Yeah, <laughs> uh, agreed. Yeah, if anything, this story made us well aware of our privilege, that's for sure. Obviously, we've hyped up the movie so much, so four out of four for both of us, oh, I yeah. believe. Uh, the novel, I mean, it's hard to really critique it. I mean, it's 
it's very similar to the movie. I think, I don't want to say the ending is too bleak because for a lot of black people in this country, that's the sad reality. So yeah, I'd go three and a half out of four for the novel as well. I, I want to read more James Baldwin. Uh, Laura, your final ratings? Yeah, I mean, four out of four. I For the book? Yeah. Oh, sweet. I I agree. Like, the, the end is so heartbreaking, but it's one of those things that you just... Yeah. It was their experience, and so, yeah, it's bleak, but I understand where it was coming from, and it's an incredible read. I couldn't put it down. I mean, yeah. I read it pretty much straight through like two days yeah it's, it was it's um, quick, quick read yeah it just yeah the structure it's like very stream of consciousness there are no chapters so if you're looking for an introduction to james baldwin this is like one of his shorter novels and yeah. incredibly incredibly well written i don't know how people write like this like yeah. <laughs> I, I just don't i don't know how they do it. i couldn't be i couldn't be a writer i'll tell you that no, much yeah well thanks for listening to another episode of at film is lit mm-hmm. and uh, please follow us on the social medias on instagram we're at film underscore is underscore lit underscore pod follow <laughs> us there for all our updates follow me on letterboxd my handle is at danny g reviews and uh yeah any anything else rate and review yep rate and review all right we'll see you on the on the next one uh we're recording these episodes out of order so i don't know what's next to be (laughs) honest but yeah we'll see you can see on our instagram what's next so that's right amen all right well we'll see you on the next one